This is Bill Munhausen with another episode featuring the Patriot Academy's Biblical Citizenship Class, Week 2. The overarching purpose of this class is to exhort the Church to dis- disciple the nations as Jesus Christ commanded us to do. And this week we delve into the biblical foundations of secular government and the scriptural basis for, wh- for why Christians should get involved. Let's face it. We tried leaving government to worldly people, and what we got was ungodly results. The book of Genesis is often called the seed plot of the Bible because every single major teaching goes back to the book of Genesis. So it is with government. The first form of government is self-government. God commanded the first man to tend the garden, and Adam obediently disciplined himself, governed himself to perform his assignment. But Genesis goes beyond the first couple and walks us through the history of creating families and city governments. The three institutions of government that developed in scripture are family, civil government, and church. Each area had its jurisdiction. It was the responsibility of family members to create provision through work, to maintain a home, and to educate and raise children to become adults. Civil government, when it came into being, had little interest in interfering in family matters. Government was busy building roads, strategizing how to keep the streets clean, building walls to defend against invaders. Religious leaders specialized in teaching about God and observances. There was necessary overlap between these three areas, but there were important boundaries. When all are working together as designed, the outcome will be the educated citizens, learning from the church, and cooperating with the community, and the needed management by civil government. That would be what we call biblical citizens. It's a coordinated approach to how family, church, and government works together. Here are a few verses to illustrate what we are saying. The writer of Ephesians recorded in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The essential commandment for children to honor their parents came from Genesis. Romans 13.4 says this about civil leaders. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. A little disclaimer is in order here. This is not saying that government is always just, but that government is dangerous. Every government enforces its law and defines what is lawful according to its understanding of how citizens should behave. A dictatorial government asserts that noncompliance is evil, regardless of a citizen's personal morality. That's why Christians sometimes conflict with their governing authorities. The writer of Romans is telling us to beware of the jurisdiction of government. Government is dangerous. The reason I make this point is that we are living in a time when our civil government asserts its power in opposition to religion. 
We will learn more about the Bill of Rights during this series, but let me note here that the First Amendment asserts freedom of religion and that government must not establish an official religion. Unfortunately, something terrible has happened in the name of freedom. By excluding all theistic religions from public life, including education, our governing authorities have fostered secular humanism as its official, unofficial religion. Notice the jurisdictional disconnection. Families have jurisdiction over teaching children in the way they should go, but government schools reject any religious content which families advocate. As a result, we are a nation whose government is at odds with many of our families. When I was in Israel, I was impressed by how they handled public schooling by allowing Arab kids to attend classes with Muslim perspective and Jewish kids to attend classes emphasizing Torah. When I asked about atheist kids, they said there were no atheist classes. Every child should learn the religion and cultural background of their ancestors so they can make informed decisions later in life. Teaching a child nothing was not an option. The American system of excluding religion is as much a violation of the First Amendment as it would be to favor a particular religion. Ironically, the American system favors secular humanism and violates the conscience of many citizens. We live in a nation at war with itself, and we must learn more creative ways to accommodate the worldview conflict. Now let me switch gears to the area we might refer to as church, really any ministerial leadership structure. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4:11 and 12, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Here again there is a designed overlap between family, civil government, and church. The church's jurisdiction is to explain religion and morality, which supports the family in conveying morality to the next generation. Both of those areas foster biblical citizenship, the characteristics of every individual which makes good government easy to manage. Daniel Webster once wrote that whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. Secularists tend to dislike this idea. They would claim that atheists can also exhibit morality, but it's rare for morality to come out of a godless foundation. Morality is, after all, a set of internalized rules. You either get those rules from an outside source, or you arbitrarily make up the rules in your own mind. The glory of Christianity is that the rules of life are defined by the creator of the universe, the designer who best knows how everything works. Secular rules are either given by a human dictator or imagined by the individual. It's an unstable basis for any civilization. Central to biblical citizenship is the scriptural concept of man's dominion, the commandment God gave the first man to tend the garden. The first man's garden was Eden, but the dominion mandate extends to all of God's creation. The seven mountains of cultural engagement are business, government, family, religion, media, education, and entertainment. Lance Wallnow called it the Seven Mountain Mandate, and secularists tend to freak out and miscategorize it. 
Here's what it says on Wikipedia. They believe that their mission is to take over the world, and it's justified by Isaiah 2.2. Quote, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. End quote. Followers believe that by fulfilling the seven mountain mandate, they can bring about the end times. That's quite a claim. In reality, it simply means that Christians and all people are involved in one or more of those areas, and that's how each of us influence the culture around us. Bringing about the end times is even a further stretch, since Jesus told us that no one knows the day or time except the Father. I suspect the more common Christian belief is that the world must descend into evil before Christ returns. So redeeming all those areas would be the opposite. I don't expect non-believers to understand Christian concepts, but I offer this as clarification in case you happen to look up things on Wikipedia. Wikipedia doesn't always get it right. We've looked at the biblical foundation for the United States Constitution, so now we turn to the Constitution itself. The average length of a national constitution across world history is just 17 years, but our constitution has endured for 235 years. We can attribute that to the sound basis on which it was founded. Secularists prefer to downplay the Bible as an influence, but we've done the math. According to a University of Houston study of roughly 15,000 writings of the Founding Fathers, the most often quoted sources used by the Founding Fathers were Locke, Blackstone, and Montesquieu, each representing less than 10% of all quotes. The largest percentage of quotes were from the Bible, totaling 34%. Let's explore some of the quotes from the Founders in this episode. John Adams wrote that resistance to sudden violence for the preservation not only of my person, my limbs, and life, but of my property, is an indisputable right of nature which I never surrendered to the public by the compact of society in which perhaps I could not surrender if I would. The maxim of the law and the precepts of Christianity are precisely coincident in relation to this subject. His quote speaks to the inalienable right to defend one's life and property. These rights are so intrinsic to life that they can't be surrendered. We see this right beyond humanity. Every living thing has an in instinct for self-preservation and defense of their dwellings. I experienced this as a kid when my friends and I decided to knock down a hornet's nest. Those hornets definitely defended their home, even after it was destroyed. There was no concept of surrender or giving up. James Wilson wrote, The great natural law of self-preservation cannot be repealed or superseded or suspended by any human institution. The right of the citizens to bear arms in the defense of themselves shall not be questioned. Every man's house is deemed by the law to be his castle, and the law invests him with a power and places on him the duty of the commanding officer of the house. Every man's house is his castle, and if any one be robbed in it, it shall be esteemed his own fault and negligence. This quote is the source of the castle doctrine 
that is so often codified into law to protect the right of people to defend themselves. The house is your castle, and you are the commanding officer of your house, and if your possessions are violated, it's your own fault. This is a radical idea in our overly civilized society where we want to let law enforcement take charge of protecting us. But Wilson recognized reality. The harm will be done long before the police arrive. Protecting the home is the homeowner's responsibility by necessity. James Otis was considered a father to the Founding Fathers, and one of his hot buttons was something called writs of assistance. These were something like a modern-day search warrant, but there was no requirement to have probable cause to search someone's property or even specify the object of the search. Under these writs, a representative of the king could enter your home, look around for anything considered unlawful, and enter that evidence as reason for the search after the fact. Under writs of assistance, citizens were completely defenseless against what we would call witch hunts. Unfortunately, the law is increasingly operating as if they had writs of assistance today. When federal officials invaded a former president's home with only a vague idea of searching for illegally held documents, it was conceptually a writ of assistance. Otis wrote, I will to my dying day oppose with all the powers and faculties God has given me all such instruments of slavery and villainy as a writ of assistance. It is the worst instrument of arbitrary power and is destructive of liberty and the fundamental principles of law. One of the most essential rights is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle, but these writs totally annihilate this right. It is a power that places the liberty of every man in the hands of every petty officer, who may reign secure in his petty tyranny and spread terror and desolation around him. Both reason and the Constitution are against such writs. Founding Father John Adams would later recall the speech by James Otis in this way. American independence was then and there born. Every man in the crowded audience went away as I did, ready to take arms against writs of assistance. Then and there was the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there the child independence was born. In fifteen years, namely in 1776, the child grew up to manhood and declared himself free. You can hear the passion in these words, but we have little regard for similar rights today. Consider the Patriot Act, which allows government what amounts to an open search warrant for every citizen's private communication. The intent is to protect us from terror terrorism, but it opens us up to abuses by unelected officials in high places who can use digital tools to spy on political opponents or just dissenting citizens. The biblical root of the castle doctrine comes from Deuteronomy 24, 10-11, which reads, When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. You have no right to invade your neighbor's private space. It's his castle. 
And if he wants to give you a piece of property as a pledge, what we call, would call collateral, then let him go get it and bring it to you. The framers of the Constitution proposed the Fourth Amendment, part of the Bill of Rights, as follows. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. No warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. They considered violation of personal property to be so sensitive that it must only be undertaken when there is clear legal purpose within very specific parameters. At this point, the video for week two went to an unexpected place, the history of slavery in America. How is it connected? The title of this lesson is Tending the Garden, which refers to God's command for Adam to preserve and manage God's creation. Leftist professors point to slavery as a terrible way to tend the garden of American culture. It's led some to assert that America is tied to the year 1619, because that's when slavery was first introduced to the colonies. So let's consider the true history of slavery in the colonies as explained by PragerU. Have you heard of the 1619 Project? It was published by the New York Times in August of 2019. It won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 2020. Its thesis, the United States was founded in 1619 when the first slave was brought to North America. Wait, that brings up some questions. What happened to 1776? To July 4th? The Declaration of Independence? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison? According to the 1619 Project, the Founding Fathers pushed for all that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness stuff to protect their slave holdings. Independence from England? That was just a smokescreen. To them, everything that's wrong with America is tied to her original sin of slavery, from segregation to traffic jams. Yes, traffic jams. For the 1619 Project authors, racism is not a part of the American experience. It is the American experience. Is this true? Let's look at three of the project's major claims. One, preserving slavery was the real cause of the American Revolution. If you asked the founders why they no longer wanted to be a British colony, they would have given you a long list of reasons. Taxation without representation, conflicts over debts from the French and Indian War, and the Stamp Act would be just a few. Probably most important was the burning desire to be free to chart their own destiny as a sovereign nation. Protecting slavery? Slavery was not under threat from the British. In fact, Britain didn't free the slaves in its overseas colonies until 1833, 57 years later, after the Declaration of Independence. Yes, the subject of slavery was hotly debated at the Constitutional Convention, but that was after the war was won. Two, slavery made America rich. Slavery made some Americans rich, true enough. Eli Yale, for example, made a fortune in the slave trade. He donated money and land for the university that is named after him. But the institution of slavery didn't make America rich. In fact, the slave system badly slowed the economic development of half the country. As economist Thomas Sowell points out, in 1860, just one year before the Civil War began, the South had only one-sixth as many factories as the North. 
Almost 90% of the country's skilled, well-paid laborers and professionals were based in the North. Banking, railroads, manufacturing, all were concentrated in the North. The South was an economic backwater. And the cost of abolishing slavery was enormous, not merely in terms of dollars, Lincoln borrowed billions to pay for it, but also in terms of human life. 360,000 Union soldiers died in order to free 4 million slaves. That works out to about one soldier in blue for every 10 slaves freed. It's hard to look at that butcher's bill and conclude that the nation turned a profit from slavery. And many things have happened since 1865. In the almost 200 years since the Civil War, the population of the country has grown almost 900%, and our national GDP has increased 12,000%. Slavery did not make America rich. Three, racism is an unchangeable part of America. This argument is more philosophical than scholarly, but it undergirds the entire 1619 project. It's also pernicious because it suggests that the United States is an inherently racist country that can't overcome its flaws. Yet that's exactly what it's done. Today, America is the most successful multiracial country in history, the only white majority country to elect a black president twice. Of course, progress has not always been smooth. There have been terrible setbacks. But to compare American attitudes about race today to America 100 years ago, let alone to 1619, is absurd. Here's a fact that should be better known. Two million black Africans have come to America as legal immigrants from countries like Nigeria in the last 50 years and have become one of the most successful groups in the country. Why would these folks move to what is often called an evil, racist country? Because unlike many people lucky enough to be born here, they know that America is a land of opportunity for everyone. It's also only fair to note that while blacks have heroically fought for our rights, often against great odds, we haven't done it alone. A vast number of decent whites have also advanced the cause of racial equality. To cite one of countless examples, the U.S. Senate that passed the landmark Civil Rights Act in 1964 contained 98 whites and two men of color, and they were Asian. The great black leaders of the past, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, Martin Luther King, never lost faith in America's promise that all people are created equal. None of them believed that racism was America's defining characteristic. They were right. Shortly after the 1619 Project was published, a group of distinguished historians, almost all on the left, wrote a public letter condemning the work. They called it a displacement of historical understanding by ideology. They were right, too. I'm Wilfred Riley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University for Prager University. Aside from the historical details of slavery, the influence of Jamestown, the supposed home of slavery, and Plymouth, whose testimony was one of cooperation between white settlers and Native Americans, is very different. Here's a talk by Tim Barton from Wall Builders. America largely could be referenced back to Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities because America was largely defined by two major early cities, early colonies, and it was Jamestown, and the second major colony was Plymouth. Both of these colonies had a major impact in American history, 
and both had an incredible legacy they left, but both were very different legacies. If you look at Jamestown, we, we probably are semi-familiar with some of the people from Jamestown, which was founded in 1607, and, and people like Captain John Smith, or, or the name Pocahontas, who's one of the great heroes as we've studied history, well, those are names we would know from Jamestown, and certainly there were some, some great people in Jamestown, but Jamestown definitely had some major problems as well. Jamestown went through a period known as a starving time where they actually turned to cannibalism. They had some major issues in Jamestown. They didn't always have great relations with the Native Americans and the Indians. And, and so there no doubt was issues with Jamestown, but that was just one of the early primary colonies. The other colony was Plymouth. Plymouth was founded in 1620. And if you look at some of the story of Plymouth, we know some major names like Governor William Bradford, but also there's major players to the story. People like Somerset, who was an Indian that the pilgrims met who actually spoke some English. And, and he told them that there was another Indian who spoke even better English than he did. And he wanted to introduce them to Squanto. And so he left and came back with Squanto. And, and they actually met the chief of the tribe, Chief Massasoit, in the midst of all of this, what they discovered was that the Wampanoag Indians were a very good Indian people, a very great tribe. They made a peace treaty with the Wampanoags. It was the longest lasting peace treaty between any whites and any natives in American history. The treaty lasted more than 50 years. Now, this is just part of the legacy of Plymouth that even today we don't know much of the story of Plymouth and their relation with the Indians and how good it was in so many scenarios. But let me back you up to Jamestown because the argument is that America was really built as a slave nation. Well, Jamestown was founded in 1607, but in 1619, there was a shipload of slaves that arrived in America. Approximately 20 slaves arrived on a British ship and the British ship had just captured these slaves off of Portuguese trade ships. When they came to Jamestown, they were sold to the people of Jamestown, but they actually were sold as indentured servants. In indentured servitude, you work for a period of several years, and generally about seven years. At the end of seven years, you would receive your freedom. All of those approximately 20 slaves not only received their freedom, they became free landowners, and some of them became very wealthy landowners in Jamestown. It wasn't until 1651 that chattel slavery actually became legal in Virginia or legal in the New World. And this is long after 1619, but again, this is Jamestown. That's one colony. There was a second colony, Plymouth. If you look at Plymouth, their history of slavery is very different. In fact, in Plymouth in 1641, they passed some early laws that actually forbid man-stealing. And man-stealing they defined as capturing someone off of a continent, transporting them across the ocean to a new continent to sell them into slavery. This was specifically targeting the North Atlantic or the African slave trade that was going on at the time. Now, in 1641, they did pass a law where they said that slavery was legal in two conditions. It was legal for punishment for a crime that you could be a slave for so many years or it was legal if you were captured in justified warfare. And some people today want to say, well, the fact that they allowed slavery in any conditions is terrible. But remember, this is the 1600s. And if it's a justified war, meaning it was a war where you were defending your property, defending your family, defending your people and nation, you didn't start the war, but you were defending. Well, if you conquered a people in the 1600s, there were only two options for a conquered people group after a war. You either killed them or you enslaved them. And this wasn't something unique for the pilgrims. This was the way the world operated for literally thousands of years. And so this was the pilgrims being normal. But they did say 
It was against the law to man steal, to, to kidnap somebody off a continent, to transport them to a new continent and sell them into slavery. Now that law matters. In 1646, the first shipload of slaves arrived in Plymouth from Africa, but because man stealing was a crime in Plymouth, the people of Plymouth imprisoned the ship captain and the crew and they freed all of the slaves and they actually charged the crew and the captain with the crime of man stealing. This is a big deal because you see the legacy of Plymouth is very different than the legacy of Jamestown. And this is what's lost today. One of the cool things that was done in the late 1800s is a map showing the legacy from Plymouth and the legacy of Jamestown. And it shows the legacy of Jamestown promoted slavery in many of the Southern states, Southern colonies, but the legacy of Plymouth promoted freedom. Although Jamestown had a very significant legacy in America, the majority of America was not impacted from the legacy of Jamestown. The true history of racism in America can be characterized as wrongdoing followed by correction, an ever upward arc toward a more just society. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, go out and do good.